And, and so we started defining who we are, what do we want to be? And, and we decided that, yeah, the only solution is revolution. And what we wanted to do was overthrow the United States government. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everyone. Welcome to tonight's event, Hillbilly Nationalists, the Young Patriots, and the Rainbow Coalition, our 10th anniversary celebration of this, uh, what I think at this point is a classic book um, sponsored by Melville House Publishing, Rampant Magazine, and Haymarket Books. My name is Eric Curl. I'll be moderating the event tonight. Um, and I wanted to uh, welcome everyone. Uh, thanks for turning out. Um, we have with us uh, Amy Sunny, who is the co-author of Hillbilly Nationalist, Urban Race Rebels and Black Power, Interracial Solidarity in the 1960s and 70s New Left Organizing from Melville House, along with James Tracy, also co-host or co-author of Hillbilly Nationalist, as well as No Fascist USA, an important book that just recently came out. Also joining us is Hi Thurman, uh, co-founder of the Young Patriots Organization and author of Revolutionary Hillbilly, Notes from the Edge of the Rainbow, The Struggle at the Edge of the Rainbow. Um, I wanted to start tonight's event uh, by recognizing that this weekend is the 100th anniversary of the Blair Mountain War, um, one of the most important labor struggles to happen in this country and in many ways the most militant uh, class struggle that happened since the Civil War. Um, black and white miners throughout the Appalachian region, around 10,000 of them that took up arms to fight against the mine bosses uh, and the landlords in eastern Kentucky, eastern Tennessee, and West Virginia. Um, now, some of that history is just recently being uh, written and uncovered, and of course, there's a tremendous uh, amount of important labor history in the region, um, even as recently as the wildcat strikes of the West Virginia teachers um, just a few years back. Uh, but the struggle of the Appalachian people is not limited to the mountains um, of the region. Uh, we also know that there's been important struggles of Appalachian people in urban centers, both within Appalachia and in the northern urban cities, places like Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Cleveland, uh, many of them. And that's one of the things that uh, we're going to be focusing in on tonight are some of those southern migrants, Appalachian migrants that ended up in places like Chicago and formed important alliances with the black freedom struggle. Um, now, many people may have heard or found or discovered rumors or footnotes around organizations like the Young Panther or the Young Patriot Organization and books like uh, Philip Foner's The Black Panthers Speak, where there is, uh, you know, an appendix in there um, of the Patriot Party's uh, letter to the movement. People will also have stumbled across 
some references to Appalachian workers in books like Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, the classic account of the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement in Detroit. Both of those titles are available from Haymarket Books. Um, and Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, uh, Dan Georgiakis writes about uh, the, the white Appalachians that were in the city at the time. He says, they fought blacks all the time, but during the Great Rebellion, they had joined blacks for looting purposes. And an amazed police, the Detroit Police Department had discovered that the majority of captured snipers were not blacks, but white hillbillies. Um, and indeed, when you watch the films of uh, uh, Finally Got the News, um, when you listen to the music of the MC5, you hear references to white radicals, the White Panther Party, many of these organizations and activists that were doing very interesting things but very little has been written about it until the uh, Hillbilly Nationalist important uh, book, a tremendous contribution to uh, the history of our struggle. Um, so I wanted to start out tonight and uh, to ask, uh, one is um, turn to high perhaps and tell us why, what it was like for you and so many other Southerners uh, that um, came to the northern cities like Chicago. Uh, what was it that drove you here? Um, we know for many uh, people, African-Americans as part of the great migration, fleeing race, terror, et cetera, and search for jobs. Um, and what was uh, the neighborhood of Uptown like when you, when you landed here? Okay, well, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, you know, the biggest... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I suppose the biggest uh, influence on people moving to the other cities and to the north, of course, was poverty. Uh, at that period of time, you know, such as even in parts of Appalachia now and other southern states, there is there is extreme poverty, you know, and a lot of it has not been recognized. And for me, um, I was raised and, you know, I, I point some of this out in the book that I wrote, but uh, I was raised in a single parent home and uh, we were sharecroppers. Uh, we, we had to go work in the field, uh, you know, to, to survive basically during the, the planting and harvest season. Uh, and for a lot of um, a lot of the Southerners, uh, when the, the the farms were mechanized, you know, the big conglomerates were taking over the farms. They were also taking over the uh, uh, the coal mines, uh, also the textile mills that were were uh, around at that time, and, and and so people were losing their jobs. They were losing their livelihood. And because of poverty, there was a lot of malnutrition and there were actually a lot of starvations going on. Uh, and so the other the other reason uh, that's one of the reasons that I went to Chicago. The other one was growing up in a small town. You know, you're subject to mistreatment because of the class that you're in. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, in the educational system, you know, the. Uh, the jobs, the um, just the whole economics of things, and and especially in uh, the the justice system, you know, you're treated 
you're treated as a second class citizen. And um, if there are any crimes committed, especially in my hometown, they would come to either, you know, some some poor people and, and arrest them with bogus, a lot of bogus charges. And so uh, I have family members that uh, I got, I escaped before it happened to me, but um, I have family members that spent time in jail for crimes they did not commit, but there were crimes that were committed by people in a, in a better class than we were in. Uh, so uh, when it came time for me uh, to get an opportunity to escape, I did. Uh, and I, I went to Chicago with an older brother who was there, who had gotten involved in uh, actually in a, in a street gang at first, but then he had gotten involved with uh, some SDS students and, and started getting kind of radicalized. But Chicago itself, uh, uptown Chicago on the north side of Chicago, uh, was it was a slum. It was just a, a ghetto. It was dirty. It was nasty. It was just, you know, people kind of living on the top of each other. There were many as 40,000 people from the south in this one community. Uh, but that didn't count the people that were from other parts of the country or parts, parts of the world that came into uptown to live there. Um, and because of that, it, you know, it was an eyesore for the city and Mayor Daley, who was, you know, uh, King Richard I, we called him, uh, used, uh, you know, he used his police department as, as a gang to keep people down. Uh, he didn't like he didn't like poor people uh, and he didn't like anybody but white people. And he was a racist. And so um, it was living in very dilapidated buildings, you know, no heat, you know, there were just slum landlords and, and uh, uh, lead poisoning. There's a lot of lead poisoning uh, in these buildings from the paint. Uh, there are also, uh, you know, when children would, would arrive from the South and go into the uh, Chicago school system, they would automatically put them back one or two grades because they didn't think that they could make it in the system. And they didn't test them, any of them, for, you know, any of the runoff chemicals or whatever from strip mining in the mines that might affect their mental, uh, uh, you know, capabilities. Uh, and so uh, there were really no medical uh, facilities around for people. Um, people were so poor that uh, within the uptown community then, which is in the 60s, the, the uh, um Unemployment rate. Roger Guy wrote a book uh, about it, and it, it was 47% unemployment in this one community, which meant that there were more people in this community without a job than there were jobs in Chicago. And you know, you can, you're not going to do any farming on concrete. Uh, and so uh, we became we became known as um, you know incestuous. There were newspaper articles about us. Uh, uh, we were we were like a swarm of locusts taking over, and you know, and don't uh, you know, just don't trust your your daughter around us. Uh, the police were given carte blanche to to do anything they wanted to do to anybody, and this meant um, this meant beating people, this meant murder, this meant rape. Uh, it meant a lot of things, and so. This one community, and finally, some people had gotten together and started doing some organizing. 
and when the join came in, SDS came in and organized what was called Join Community Union and started, you know, uh, indoctrinating some people as to, you know, revolutionary politics. And, and I was I was one of them. I went there when I was 17 years old. And and got involved. Uh, had been beaten a couple of times, uh, thrown in jail, you know, for no reason. Uh, you know, so there were no jobs. I had to work in day labor agencies, which, you know, uh, you go to work one day and you get minimum wage, and if you're lucky, not getting hurt, you might go back the next day. Uh, that's only after you pay off the manager of the of the uh, day labor agency. And then if you can't do that, blood banks were, uh, these blood banks were right next door to these uh, day labor agencies where you could sell your blood, uh, which a lot of us had to do at certain times. But that's, that that community, uh, that community is a very unique community because it had almost everybody from around the world, you can imagine. Not a large black population. But uh, it did have a, a very large Southern uh, white population there that was part of a migration circle, basically. It went from China, Chicago to Detroit to Cincinnati to Cleveland. And there were a whole thousands of people from the South just traveling around trying to find jobs. And, and so that's what it was like when I was there. When I first arrived there, uh, you know, I recognized the country music and I recognized the Confederate flag and I, you know, recognized the uh, the Southern accent, but I didn't recognize much of anything else because it definitely was not, uh, there definitely was not any open spaces unless it was a dilapidated buildings had been torn down, uh, you know, and, and so we were treated as, you know, we were we were treated actually as as you know, I'd have to say pretty close to animals, and 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 the cops and and the politicians, and you know, they all treated us that way. And so this is where I came from. That's how I got there, and and that's what uh, that's when I started thinking that uh, well, I, I always thought that you know this was the land of opportunity. And uh, but I couldn't find any opportunities there at all. And and so some of us street guys had gotten together and started hanging out together and, and became some, you know, became political. Mm. That's great. And we will definitely come back to that critical part of the part of the story. I wanted to maybe turn over to um, James and, uh, and Amy. Uh, because this does seem like such an important story. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak about what drove you to write about uh, these activists, these experiences, these organizations um, of mostly, if not all, white people. Um, and were you concerned with it this project might be centering whiteness too much? Um, how did you sort of conceive of the book in the context of, you know, racism, which is so central to American uh, capitalism? Um, um, maybe, Amy, if you want to go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I can kick us off. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Eric Foner's book, um, Jeffrey Ogbar, also his book. Um, 
you know, I, I, because of the footnotes, uh, James and I came to this project through different avenues, parallel, um, but different tracks. And for me, it really was about following the footnotes um, in these books about the Black Power Movement, about the 60s and the New Left, um, as part of a study group that I was a part of in the early 2000s. So I was active in a group called the Challenging White Supremacy Workshop um, that was looking at white supremacy and looking at whiteness. It was an interracial um, study at the time with the Institute for Multiracial Justice led by Phil Hutchings and Batita Martinez. And then Sharon Martinez um, ran the Challenging White Supremacy Workshop. Um, and as part of that, we were grappling with the intersections of race with class and gender um, and other issues throughout history and in our current work. So um, speaking for myself, but it's true for James too, we, we came to the project as activists looking for um, stories and examples in history of the past um, that could help us grapple with the contradictions of organizing around race and class, um, around tackling racism um, and addressing white supremacy. Um, and so for me, it wasn't so much about uh, looking for role models and and trying to tell the story just of white people, but uh, the story uh, to, to research and understand a moment in history um, when the trend of racism being used to break up multiracial um, coalitions, you, you mentioned, you know, Blair Mountain, like there, there are these moments in history when we've seen multiracial uprisings or when we've seen multiracial coalition building and alliances form. Um, and so often race breaks these apart. Um, and so for me, it was a process of studying and starting to interview people and look into a moment in history when it looked like something else different happened, at least for a period of time wanting to understand at first, like how did the Patriots even come to be, right? How did they form? How does a, a group of young Appalachian youth um, organized into a street gang turn into an organization like the Young Patriots that ends up standing side by side with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords? How does that happen? Um, and in the process of researching that, um, it was sort of a, a backwards process of discovering joint community union um, and then a forwards process of realizing that the legacy was much bigger um, and that Rising Up Angry, October 4th organization and White Lightning um, in Philadelphia and the Bronx, respectively, were also a part of that family tree of organizations during this era um, and that we had something to learn there. So I'll pass it to James. Thank you. Um, so this story, this tradition was handed down to me by some of my mentors uh, that I was doing organizing with. Um, Malik Rahim, Bathola Harper, and Marie Harrison all would tell, knew about the Young Patriots. Uh, Malik had been at the United Front Against Fascism Conference, uh, and they all knew about it and thought that the Patriots were great. You know, and these were all uh, black elders, black activist elders that I was working uh, in parallel tracks around housing organizing in um, in, Sa in San Francisco. So I was always very curious about uh, about the about this because uh, certainly the Patriots uh, had earned the uh, the respect of people who were giving me uh, a political education uh, as we did door knocking, as we did tenant meetings together, as we hung out afterwards. Uh, they would they would talk very. Really about history, they're part of it, and what they thought were uh, examples of um, dependable white people, and what they thought were uh, uh, were uh, examples of undependable, uh, unreliable uh, white people. So, for me, 
a lot of this book was just trying to um, trying to point to some concrete examples of what uh, what what it looks like when uh, white people make a very real and deep and not surface level commitment to being antagonists to white supremacy, but within a working class context of, of course. Um, and, you know, because the Patriots and the other organizations that we talk about went through, went through that, uh, went through that process, found, looked at what partnership looked like, looked at what uh, follow, following through looked like, made some mistakes here and there, but earned, you know, earned the respect of their uh, comrades of color. So it's, it's kind of like the exact opposite example of Protectors of Privilege, which is a fantastic book talking about many of the disasters of um, of coalition building. Well, you know, the the this the I like to think of the threat of a of a good example. Um, so we chose, you know, Gil Fagiani from White Lightning made the argument to us that the groups in uh, in these books that were uh, in this book that was very similar, kind of formed a, a political tendency on the left during that time of white working class people taking both their class interests uh, seriously and as part of that realizing how central the fight against uh, white white supremacy was and experimenting and their organizing about uh, what what might makes sense. I think it's important to remember that the first Rainbow Coalition model to organize your own but work together in coalition was a response to very specific uh, conditions during during the time that it was uh, that that it was cr- created. When people ask us, like, well, should people be in in separate organizations or not? And the, you know, the answer is quite you know quite easy. It's like depends on the conditions in your community, right? Uh, and everything. Certainly, I would love to have left organizations that were all multiracial and worked well together. Uh, but there's a process, right? Uh, Bob Lee from the Panthers called, said that the uh, the Rainbow Coalition was a code word for class struggle. And uh, the Rainbow Coalition model, not just the main Rainbow Coalition that I and others were part of, but that model was an experiment on how to get to that point. Mm, thank you. Thank you for all of that. Um, I'm going to follow that up with another question, basically around the title of the book, Hillbilly Nationalist, and this question of class struggle and the political tendency that you're describing of white working class youth um, uniting with the, with the black struggle or, uh, you know, struggles of other oppressed folks um, on a class kind of basis, on a, on a basis of class solidarity, which I think is really important. Um, the title, Hillbilly Nationalist, um, and some of the stuff that High is describing uh, in terms of what it was like to live in a place like Uptown, um, the epithets, you know, Hillbilly, some of us embrace that word, um, some of, you know, depending on who's using it um, and how it's being used, uh, does also seem to point to another direction beyond just merely class exploitation. So I'm wondering if, if maybe you all could, uh, you know, and it would be interesting, you know, to maybe High could sort of start this discussion off. Um, is You know, when we think hillbilly, um, many people automatically think white. Um, you know, we can quibble around that historically. Um, but basically, you read the title as, you know, some form of white nationalist, which has all sorts of, you know, really negative fascistic connotations. 
Um, but nationalism in terms of the struggle of oppressed people often takes on a different uh, sort of form or understanding um, that is something beyond just merely a sort of class struggle as well. Um, I'm hoping that maybe you all can sort of talk about that as well. Um, maybe hi, we could start off with you and then uh, just go back to Amy and, and then James. Okay. Yeah, the term hillbilly, I mean, we always used it. You know, most of us from the South would say, you, you're you stupid hillbilly or, you know, uh, uh, you know, so to us, to us, it was just a word. It wasn't anything that, you know, and, and we would laugh at it sometimes with the Beverly Hillbillies or we would, you know, with, uh, with some of those programs and just say, you know, they got it wrong. It's just, you know, it's just another way for people to make fun of other people, basically. But, you know, and um, and uh, we always we had this saying that, you know, uh, in, in the Young Patriots, we, we may be hillbillies, we're smart, so therefore we're, we're hill Williams, you know. <laughs> and so we had a way of joking about that, you know, and, and not, you know, not using it in a condescending way. Um, and I think uh, one of the we did actually in the Young Patriots at one point talking about uh, freeing Appalachia, you know, and our 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 goals were to organize white people, you know. I mean that's sort of much the, that's the role that we've been sort of taken and given in the Rainbow Coalition too. Uh, and back when SNCC made the statement, "Go and organize your own." You know, organize your own people. You know, we don't need you in Berkeley and other places to try to organize us. You know, go in your own, own neighborhood because that's where the racism exists. Uh, and you have to understand that we were racist. I mean, we were raised in racism. It was indoctrinated in us. I mean, we, we, we were racist, but we were anti-racist because we began to see what was happening, you know, during the civil rights movement. Mark, Dr. King and others uh, you know, and, and we began to see that, you know, the we knew about Blair Mountain and we knew about the Highlander Center in Tennessee and Miles Horton and those folks, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, the Bradens that we're talking about, you know, just, these are things that we're just kind of, we were curious about, okay, but yet we still had that identity of, of you know, a, a Southern person, uh, a hillbilly, you know. And so we didn't use it in a, a condescending way, but we would we would challenge people that did. You know, much the fact that people use the N word or, you know, the they're calling the the, the uh, Puerto Ricans uh, pork chops or or you know specks or any of those. You know, and we would challenge people on that. You know, and. Uh, and so to us, you know, the term hillbilly didn't really mean what it meant to a lot of other people. Uh, it was just a derogatory term for some people to use. But for us, it was just part of our identity and we still use it. Uh, you know, I'm in Alabama and we use it here too. But, you know, we do challenge those people that, that try to use it in a condescending way. But we did, we did talk about you know, freeing Appalachia because of how Appalachia had been, you know, looked over for many years and it's in poverty and, you know, uh, and, and that it was, it was uh, 
taken over by a fascist government. And, and so we, we thought that we should have a free Appalachia. So therefore, I guess it would have been nationalism, you know, if you look at it in that, in that term. Yeah. Um, I'll pick up there. Thanks. Hi. Um, and yeah, I'm all for reclaiming terms, reclaiming the term hillbilly and rednecks and um, just looking at the the great work that Beth Howard and Rednecks for Black Lives are in Southern Crossroads and all of those folks are doing right now. Um, but I also want to be clear that our book's not making an argument for reclaiming white nationalism um, and uh, that the hillbilly nationalists that we're talking about in the book in this book um, differed in every way from what we understand as white nationalism now. So this, you know, it's not an argument for the reclamation of that term. Um, and the book does go into really understanding, as James said, about understanding the conditions of the time. We always have to look back at the historical conditions that in order to understand their use of the term na nationalism or this idea that um, like a free Appalachia or a, um, an Appalachian nationalism made sense you've got to look at the bigger context of the time. So the mid-1960s, late 1960s is a time of anti-colonial struggles around the globe. Um, it's a time of uprisings. It's a time of folks throwing off imperial powers all around the globe. And that anti-colonial struggle in third world countries um, lent tremendous inspiration to radicals here at home, um, to the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, to Iwar Kuhn, um, the American Indian movement, um, even though the conditions for indigenous peoples are really different um, than what we're talking about for, say, Black folks or Puerto Rican folks here in the U.S., um, but that these movements were in dialogue with each other around anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles in the late 60s. And so um, as descendants of colonized people, a lot of these groups understood themselves as oppressed nationalities within the United States. And it was within that framework um, and that set of conditions that the white arc of the rainbow, as, as High's book points to, um, we're really grappling, well, well, what does this mean for oppressed, um, economically oppressed blocks of poor white folks who are economically oppressed in a place like Appalachia? Um, so very, very different than white nationalism, obviously, deeply rooted in an internationalism and a radical politic um, and a, a common cause. Um, politic and a left politic, not a regressive or right-wing politic. You're muted, James. Sorry about that. So I should I should probably add that this was not uh, the first choice of titles for Amy and myself. I think we stepped in with wanting to call it the cause, common cause was freedom or revolutionary greasers or something like that. And our editor at the time felt strongly that this particular combination of words would uh, would create a lot of ac accidental findings on the internet. Right, and he, unfortunately, he was actually actually quite uh, quite right because uh, Hillbilly Elegy came out, you know, a, a few years later, and I've had people actually say, "Hey, I bought your book because I thought I was buying the other one." Um, so that's um, you know that's that. But you know, as, I was on a call with uh, the great Bill Mullen a few days ago uh, with uh, Pilsen Community Books, and he just. Uh, uh, 
put it really eloquently in my to you know to paraphrase. He said that you know the Panthers had an internationalist working class perspective. They saw that the tip of the vanguard were the anti-colonial um, uprisings going on, just like Amy said. And the Patriots saw that and said, "Hey, we want to be a part of that. We want to. Uh, we think that's we think that's supportable. We want to be in solidarity with that. But and we want we 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 want to figure out our role." So the term hillbilly nationalist actually comes, I believe it uh, it was uh, one of the Patriots, but during the Patriot Party time uh, comes from uh, Bill Festerman, uh, who coined the term. It hasn't aged well, but uh, it's the name of our book, so we'll just we'll we'll go with it. It is we argued back at the time that the shorthand title for the book would become Hillbilly Nationalists, which really leaves out a lot of the other organizations we write about in the book because, you know, people tend to truncate titles. And so that's what happened. It's we, the shorthand. <laughs> and we had a really good, deep conversation with one of the women who we uh, who we interviewed who objected to the idea of urban race rebels, right? Because uh, she really saw the work that she and others did did as uh, you know as direct you know directly um, in her class interest as a working class woman who became ra- radicalized and whites and getting rid of white supremacies uh, big and big and small worthy was was part of was part of that project so the idea of someone rebelling against race didn't quite quite do it uh, uh, do it for her. and I, I think the, uh, the the criticism uh, we received it and we heard it um quite um quite quite a bit fascinating yeah that was a that was a great discussion and a discussion that is still ongoing um in so many ways importantly enough um i wanted to turn maybe at this point to some of the personalities and activists involved in the story um you know one of the figures that looms large uh, in uptown history and in the book uh, is is Peggy Terry, um, who played such a prominent role in there. Um, and I wonder, Amy, if you could sort of take us through, uh, you know, who Peggy Terry was and why she was such a critical figure for uptown organizers. Yeah, thank you. Um, I like to I like to think that Peggy's magic is what brought High and us together. Um, also, um, and just I want to give a big thank you to Peggy's uh, daughter Margie for opening her home, Peggy's personal archives um, to us because so much of this story um, about Join, about Peggy, about the Young Patriots wouldn't have been able to be told without a lot of people's personal archives and the time that they gave to us. Um, but Peggy Peggy was meticulous in her note-taking and her journaling. Um, she kept everything. Um, and so I really, in a ton of different ways, without Peggy, this book wouldn't exist. Um, so Peggy Terry um, is a Southern white woman um, who grew up in Oklahoma. Family moved back and forth a lot to Kentucky. Um, and she grew up in a family with a grandfather who was a Klan member and a father who was a Klan sympathizer. so grew up in racism and is uh, sort of somewhat famed in our book, but also in, in a Studs Terkel interview for saying, you know, when you um, walk through garbage, you stink, right? Like you you grow up, you're taught these things, um, you you 
you don't you can't just shake it off. And so her journey uh, we trace in the book is around her coming to consciousness, um, around a moment during the Montgomery bus boycott when her eyes really opened and as she ended up telling her um, grandson's uh, college class years and years later, like it was the it was the day that marked her becoming a better person. Um, up until that point, she um, you know was not actively you know participating in clan activities or anything like that, but she wasn't you know, conscious or aware or disavowing it either. Um, and just really, um, you know, took, it took her time for her eyes to open to the realities of racism and to realize she had a role to play, um, in ending it. And so, you know, a couple of years later, she got involved with CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, um, who she organized with for a couple of years. Um, High mentioned the conditions in Uptown around schools for kids in the communities there. Um, One of the first campaigns that Peggy got involved in with CORE was around conditions for students on the South Side um, for black students. Um, and she really spent a lot of time, you know, thinking of herself as an ally in the struggle for black liberation and black freedom. Um, until a couple years later when her mentor, Monroe Sharp took her across town to join community unions office. Uh, those, I think joined been around for about a year or two at that point. Um, and said, you know, you gotta know who you are before you know who we are. Um, it's, you know, fighting against racism and, and supporting black liberation is not an act of charity. Um, you got to understand where you come from and who you are. And there's work to do here. Um, she was not so happy about it. Um, she, you know, looked around her neighborhood and was like, what? Um, but, you know, Join's work was growing and strong. And she formed some pretty close personal relationships with other women in the community. Mary Hockenberry, Virginia Bowers, um, two African-American women who lived in the neighborhood and who were powerful organizers. Debbie Thurman, um, and Debbie Coleman, an aunt and a, and a niece, um, they um, together started to do work and join and really sort of cut their teeth on like organizing 101 um, and got a welfare project going. So um, it eventually turned into something that split off called Welfare Recipients Demand Action. But for several years, it was a project of joint community union, um, helping welfare recipients understand their basic rights and fight back and um, really fight back against what was a, an incredibly invasive and dehumanizing process for many of the women in the community. Um, I think one of the other things that's important about Peggy's growing leadership during this time is um, that, you know, Join Community Union, a project of Students for a Democratic Society, um, had started out with a focus on full employment now, jobs. Um, But, you know, the work was slow going. Organizing is slow going and working in a community that has had um, predatory social service agencies, but not a lot of grassroots building up like the real power of the people, community organizing doesn't happen overnight. And uh, some of the early SDS organizers had no patience for what it was going to take to organize in that neighborhood. Um, And the focus on jobs left women out in a really big way. Um, A lot of women were all working, but they were working the kind of jobs where, you know, there wasn't a workplace where you could hold the boss accountable. It was domestic. It was underground labor. It's, you know, as High talked about, there was day labor, um, a lot of day labor agencies around that were pretty predatory. And um, uh, a lot of women were, you know, working in contexts and situations where it was pretty hard to demand full employment. (laughs) Um, These weren't recognized workplaces that like the government was going to do anything about. Um, and so, um, the shift towards organizing welfare recipients, the shift towards fighting, one of their major wins was to get a day labor agency, um, that actually didn't charge fees. Um, and that work really, I think, 
built up and brought up the leadership of folks like Peggy and Mary and Virginia. Um, and it was from there that Join started doing um, more programs and more work. So after the welfare work, they started doing more around housing rights. Um, Hi described the conditions in the community pretty well. Um, you can see why it would be needed. And then increasingly work around police brutality. Um, and in all of those struggles from welfare to um, housing to police brutality, they were working on issues that brought them into like natural alliance with communities of color and black communities in particular, but Puerto Rican communities in Chicago across town because the landlords were the same. Um, or welfare recipients were facing similar things. And so all of the work and groundwork that they laid under Peggy's leadership alongside the student organizers really laid some important groundwork um, that continued in Chicago for, for many years. Mm. Yeah, I remember uh, another fascinating interview that Studs Terkel did with Dovey Thurman, where she it seems like the opposite, where she says, you know, I got involved in the civil rights movement through a group of a bunch of white people. Uh, that was a pretty, pretty great story. Um, I guess I wanted to turn back to High because uh, you had begun on this story about the Join Community Union, the genesis of the Patriots. Um, hopefully people have seen that documentary on YouTube, American Revolution 2, where there's the, you know, the, the real Robert Lee is speaking to a group of folks here in Uptown. Um, Hi, could you uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how you met some of the folks from the Join uh, Community Union, Robert Lee, um, what some of that stuff looked like that uh, brought about the, the, the YPO? Uh, yeah, uh, well, as I said, I, I, I got involved with uh, Join uh, mainly because, you know, my older brother had gotten involved with Join. And uh, and some of the other uh, some of the other street people uh, had gotten involved, and that's how I that's how I got involved in it. Uh, but a lot of times, with a lot of us, they were just speaking a completely different language. You know that we had there's a there's a cultural difference there. Um, you know when they started talking about bourgeoisie and proletarian, we're like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, we don't know what you're talking about. So we had to educate them as well as them educating us, you know, in terms of organizing, you know, and Peggy Terry was a very big important part of that, too. Uh, and 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 so we were we would um, get together. One of the things that we did was had a march on the police station on police brutality. And at that time. This was when the the street gang, uh, some of the some of the guys from the street gang called the, the peacemakers had gotten involved in join and uh, join had realized that, hey, there's other things in this community that need to be done besides, uh, you know, and, and, you know, employment. And so uh, uh, they started developing different types of programs, you know, tenant unions, uh, police brutality uh patrols uh and 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 the like and one of them was to get to get uh, get people together and march on the local police station on police brutality you know and these were these were white folks doing this uh you know because of the the brutal murderous uh conditions that existed and so that brought a lot of people in the community together and then from there uh they said well Let's call ourselves the good fellas, 
which then again would, you know, align them somewhat with the mafia that was there. But uh, they called themselves that for a while. Uh, then we got involved from there into a lot of, you know, some uh, different programs in the community with, you know, uh, with with the uh, welfare recipients demand action. We were working with. We were working with, uh, you know, tenant unions. Actually, we managed to get a building and and that that we could run that join ran, and and so we're working around those areas. We're working around police brutality. Uh, after the after the police march, uh, the joint office and some of the other offices in the community or people and uh, pastors in the community were helping us. There, you know, they they got raided and arrested. Uh, one of our other members got killed, got murdered, and the re- the whole reason for the uh, the police march was because the police had murdered uh, one of our members, and so uh, and and no no cops were ever arrested. I mean, they were never charged with anything. They just do do whatever they wanted to do, and so from there, you know, we decided that. You know, we're just we're, we're not going to put up with it anymore. For one thing, where would we go? You know, I didn't want to go to Detroit or Cincinnati or Cleveland, those places, because those conditions were just as bad as uptown, uh, because these communities that we had to go into would be just as bad. Uh, and so couldn't go back home, left there for a reason. And so some of us decided that, hey, uh, Let's just fight it. Let's see what we can do. What else? What do we have to lose? I mean, you know, we we're going to have to fight uh, to to get what we want, and we're going to have to take it, and we're going to have to take the fight to the authorities. And so we started organizing in the community, and we were just, uh, you know, I was when I came to Chicago, I was seventeen. I was eighteen when I got involved in you know the stuff, and then. Uh, uh, there were, you know, four or five of us that were in the community that started getting involved and supporting other community actions, actually. And what we found out was that they wanted us to show up to their meetings. And these were good people in the community organizing, but they thought we were too young to be listened to. And you have to understand that most of us never had a childhood. You know, we went right into working and surviving. So we didn't really have a childhood like like most of the other people had. And so and most of us had to fight, you know, to get what we wanted all the time. So it was only natural for us to know what we knew on the street uh, to go in and and start working together. And one of the things that we, we did was uh, started looking at other organizations and uh, and even third world countries, uh, uh, and and most of us couldn't read. I have to say that I, when I first came to Chicago, I was reading on a third grade level, so most of us couldn't read. So we learned from talking. A lot of us learned from uh, from the you know watching the TV through the underground newspapers, you know that kind of stuff. So we would we would have to somewhat be self educated. And, and so we started defining who we are, what do we want to be? And, and we decided that, yeah, the only solution is revolution. And what we wanted to do was overthrow the United States government. We were revolutionaries. And that um, we were looking at groups like uh, the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. Uh, 
and others, and, and they were looking at us at the same time, and, and we didn't know that, but we met Bobby Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee, which uh, he always got a kick out of that name. He said, uh, you know, it's like naming your kid Adolf Hitler in a Jewish neighborhood, you know, but he was, uh, he was really a, a fantastic organizer. Uh, he taught us a lot, and then we started, uh, he started working with us because we met uh, Bobby Lee at a, a, a community meeting south of us, and, and we were calling ourselves the Young Patriots at that point because we figured, um, you know, we, we, we didn't know a lot about history, but we knew about the American Revolution, and we knew that the Patriots fought for their people. And so said, we said, we're going to fight for our people, but we're not going to fight for capitalism. You know, we're going to fight for more socialism than anything else, because we begin to know a little bit about socialism and uh, Marxism. And, you know, so the group of us decided that we would get together and, and just start talking about that and trying to learn from each other. And so, you know, we brought in some other people and then at this particular meeting we were at, um, uh, the, the, this was a, a white middle class group of people that would bring in, you know, like a community council group that would bring in people once or twice a month just to see what was happening in Chicago. And, and so they were pretty hard on us. And if you saw American Revolution 2 that you mentioned, it, it was actually filmed uh, that that meeting was filmed uh, because Mike Gray and Howard Off and some of the others that made that documentary heard that these these uh, crazy hillbillies and the blacks were going to get together at a meeting on the north side of Chicago. And if you know anything about Chicago, blacks usually didn't come to the north side of Chicago. You know, this is um, Chicago's extremely segregated. And so after this particular group of people were through trying to shred us, you might say, Bobby Lee stood up and defended us. And, you know, he had his beret and his jackets and jacket on. And, and uh, since then, uh, he came to Uptown, stayed with us for a couple of weeks and went back to Fred Hampton and said, you know, I haven't told you this, but I've been visiting these you know, these crazy hillbillies on the north side of Chicago, and they're they're talking revolution and anti-racism and all this stuff, you know. And and so Fred said, well, you know, this is the kind of people that we need, you know, for the revolution, uh, actually. Um, even though, you know, they're they're from the south, they're, they're anti-racist. And he knew some, a little bit about what we've been doing. And so... What happened after that was in the in the film Revolution Two, you'll see a community meeting where the, uh, the whole community came out. Just almost, you know, I'm not saying the whole community, but a lot of Southerners came out and and agreed with what he was saying. And that that was the one of the first steps for us in joining the Rainbow Coalition, you know, and 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 working together. And that was very important because Bobby Lee. Uh, we also had a meeting with the local police commander, and uh, Bobby Lee was named our uh, chairman of the police brutality committee. 
you know, the black man for a bunch of Southern people. <laughs> and so that, that kind of blew them away. But uh, yeah, since that point, we started working together, you know, and adopted, uh, you know, adopted uh, of the, the 11 point program, program of the Black Panthers and wrote our own program around it and started working together in, in the Rainbow Coalition with the Young Lords at that time. Well, I can definitely say that we have an easy way to resolve the Robert E. Lee uh, statue problem. We just take down the con Confederate one and we put Bob Lee, our good friend, and Black Panther <laughs> as, uh, up all over the place and uh, problem solved. That's right. That'll do it. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, now, we have, uh, you know, I want to make sure that we have enough time on this event to have some questions from folks in the audience. Um, so maybe we can get to just a couple more uh, uh, questions here before we turn it over to some of that. Um, the Young Patriots organization, as, as folks have mentioned, aren't the only organization that's discussed in the book. In fact, there's a whole number of other organizations that uh, are in there. And I wanted to turn to some of those groups. Um, Rising Up Angry here in Chicago, for instance, is a, is a critical piece. Um, you know, Michael James, you know, ran the, the Heartland Cafe in my neighborhood uh, for a very long time. And it was always a center of organizing and activity. Um, sadly, when it got sold, the first thing that happened there was that the portrait of Fred Hampton was removed from behind the bar. Um, but some of that legacy, you know, did, did continue. Um, so I wonder, James, maybe we could turn it over to you and you could talk about some of the some of the work from Rising Up Angry, uh, White Lightning, the October 4th organization. What are some of the things that connected some of their work, maybe, um, and maybe highlight some of their differences? Um, and I also want to make sure that we're able to touch on Rising Up Angry's uh, work around uh, reproductive justice, uh, collaborations with the Jane Collective, um, some of that as well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I think for all intents and purposes, uh, they might not have been, in the, been there at the exact moment that the Rainbow Coalition uh, started, but uh, certainly we should consider uh, Rising Up Angry as part of uh, the project of Rainbow Coalitions, both in Chicago and the national exa examples, even though they weren't a national organization or whatnot. So Rising Up Angry uh, you know, went citywide in Chicago to build build a base uh, amongst uh, white youth, but mostly the greaser youth, all up and down uh, sh yeah, Chicago. And they um, they had a had a wonderful grasp of working class culture, uh, you know, using baseball games, uh, con you know, rock concerts and the like to organize uh, back in the day and really reach people where they were at. Uh, great example. My one of my favorite stories from the book is where. Um, they're one of the people that they were working with and they thought he had come a long way away from racism, wanted some guns and some bats to um, go beat up uh, some black kids that he had had a conflict with. And they refused and they were able to force, uh, prevent a gang war just by alerting uh, the black youth leaders uh, 
what was going on and then talking uh, talking directly to the white gangs and they had enough credibility to pull it off. So it was a it was one of those horrible moments in the United States history or Chicago history that never happened because they handled it. And it was from build, you know, building a base. And as you mentioned, um, they also um, you know in, worked with the Jane Collective and the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, applying a lot of the serve the people uh, models to uh, through a feminist lens. Even their legal clinics, uh, you know, had you know taught people how to get divorces, which is a pretty pretty feminist act uh, for a bunch of people that start off um, organizing greasers, uh, whatnot. Um, October Fourth Organization in Philadelphia is a is a group that really I really love their example. Uh, similar in many ways to uh, to the Patriots, uh, doing you know doing lots of good tenant you know tenant organizing things like that, uh, but also. Uh, Participating in the coalition that actually defeated Frank Rizzo, Mayor Frank Rizzo, you know the, um, uh, you know Frank Rizzo, uh, extremely racist, probably loved uh, Mayor Daley. They were probably best friends. We don't know that for sure, uh, but they probably admired each other's uh, use of police and racism quite quite a bit. Uh, wanted to amend the the Philadelphia Constitution so he could basically become mayor for life, and they put together uh, our October Fourth organization with many different organizations, came up with an electoral strategy where people could handle each other's neighborhoods, and they found out that many many uh, working class white people hated Rizzo just as much as uh, as as their counterparts in black and brown neighborhoods, and White Lightning uh, we. Really should do an entire uh, webinar just on white lightning, but a group of uh, you know f f uh, form you know former and current active drug users become radicalized, start working with the Black Panther parties and Young Lords and the famous Lincoln Party. I mean, sorry, the, the Lincoln Hospital takeover, and um, really were you know fought some of the very very first battles in the on the war on drugs. And very inspired by the work of Michael uh, Tabor from the Panthers, who wrote uh, D uh, "Dope uh, Plus Capitalism Equals Genocide," the famous uh, uh, famous pamphlet. And you see within a lot of their work a lot of the kernels that are now articulated through harm reduction and and uh, politics, but very distinctly an anti-colonial. Uh, uh, analysis of of the drug drug program, and of course they they worked very very much on the housing issue as well, urban renewal, but also the fire you know the the landlord arsons that were going on on the in in the Bronx. And if people want to learn more about White Lightning, uh, almost all of their newspapers are now up on uh, on Freedom Archives, which is pretty great. Yeah, I was just going to add to thank you, James. Um, Around uh, like rising up angry in particular was one of the organizations we wrote about that really evolved the most sophisticated is not quite the right word but you know the the most active um, feminist analysis in their work um, and October Fourth organization as well was doing a ton of really important work around reproductive justice around health around women's rights um, and in particular distributing triple jeopardy um, and working in collaboration with the Third World Women's Alliance and I think one of the reasons that this is 
it's important to think about is, you know, this was in an era before the term intersectionality existed um, and before the Kambahi River Collective talked about interlocking systems of oppression. Um, but these groups, by nature of being in the community and addressing racism and dealing with the, the interests and the needs of poor people um, and dealing with what was happening for women in the community, whether it was domestic violence or a lack of reproductive control, um, they had to make a choice during an era when second wave feminism um, had a, you know, a tendency towards separatism or um, a separation. Um, a lot of the women in these organizations said, no, like it, we're staying in the community and feminism is here. Um, what it means to do this is here. We're not separating out. We're investing more deeply in building community and community organizing. And we're not going to let shit fly, right? So we're going to address these issues in our homes, in our families, in our organization with the men that we struggle and work with um, and really actually like address race and class and gender together um, at a time before those theories and, and those approaches actually had names. Mm, thank you. Uh, so we're getting quite a few questions coming in now. Um, perhaps we just turn over to some of that. Um, the first one I have is for Hi from VV. Uh, and I think this is a fun question. Hi, what was one of the most humbling, memorable experiences you had during your time with the YPO? Hmm. Well, I think, uh, <clears throat> I think one of the most humbling that, that I would have is is when we started, or I started realizing just how how much of a racist I am, I was, and humbling in being able to do security, I think, uh, for the Black Panthers. Uh, you know, standing arm in arm with the Panthers and the Young Lords, and and just being humble to a point where uh, I was completely a part of their organization. I mean, it wasn't because when I the way it worked with the Rainbow Coalition is uh, if, if if the Panthers, or the Lords, or other organizations wanted us to to, to uh, assist. Uh, be it with, with security or with, with a, you know, a protest or a takeover, uh, whatever. Uh, I would I would have to try to shed. Um, you know, I I would join their organization and and become one of them. In other words, I wouldn't be a patriot anymore. Uh, I would be. I would be a Black Panther and they would tell me what to do. Okay. Without question, I would do it. And I think that's probably one of the most humbling uh, things that I could have done uh, in, in realizing and challenging, you know, being, being from the South and, you know, being raised in a very racist environment most of my life was, uh, admitting to the fact that, you know, I am racist, but if I'm ever going to accomplish in life what I want to accomplish, and we're going to accomplish that that revolution, uh, and that these are truly my brothers and sisters, regardless of 
what color, you know, that to me was was humbling for me. And uh, I think some of the other, you know, Panthers, I mean, the uh, Patriots felt the same way. Mm. Um, so the, the next question that I have is from KSW217. Um, how is music, country, rock, et cetera, used to organize and what impact did it have, if any? And I know that you guys write about this quite a bit, both in terms of the positive elements of it and some of the pitfalls of some of it. Um, maybe James, if you want to, uh, if you want to go first, and then we could go over to Amy, and and, and I'm sure Hi has a lot of insight in, uh, uh, to this too. Yeah, actually, um, I'll just be really brief. I mean, almost all the organizations that we work with used rock and uh, and youth culture to reach to reach youth. I mean, it's just kind of basic, right? You know, you and and newspapers and sports events and things like things like that. Um, you know, keep in mind that you know this is you know MC five. Uh, you know, from the White Panther Party. We're doing a lot of this uh, this cultural jamming, this uh, you know uh, that w- that was put you know propagandizing a lot of these ideas all over all over the country, and uh, getting people to support the Panthers or uh, especially the Free Huey campaigns. Uh, but and you know the Patriots, as I can tell you, uh, you you know use the idea of uh, the Hank Williams Village to provide an a, a alternative to urban renewal in uh in uptown that was community community controlled that's pretty that's that's pretty fantastic but keep in mind that the patriots especially went pretty far as far as cultural activism so i can tell you did a poetry project called the time of the people and um and 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 much you know and, and much more committed a lot to the literary part of the struggle that many you know many people would never have thought that that that, that was even possible because of their own class biases so um i'll just leave it at that yeah i'll try to be brief also i think that um music uh, and art has always been a part of movements, whether you're looking at South Africa or movements today or whether you're looking at <clears throat> the 60s and the role that music played, um, not just with the groups we wrote about, with the, but with the entire movement. Um, and it was powerful. Um, and so, you know, tapping into the, the heart and the culture that folks are feeling and then reflecting what people are, the imagination people are struggling towards or the, the pain that people express through art and music. Um, I think that that resonated for a lot of folks. So it made sense um, that music and art and uh, poetry and writing and newspapers and all of those things would be a part of how these groups expressed their politics, how they built community. Um, and like James said, how they also reached young people um, or reached each other. Um, and then I'm hoping Hi will talk about from blues to bluegrass a little bit. <laughs> okay, thanks, Amy. Yeah, music was a very important part of our culture. And, you know, when I went, when I first went to, came to Uptown, you know, it was the country music that I was listening to that kind of made me feel comfortable and take me, you know, take me back home, for instance, to the good parts. But uh, uh, one of the one of the things we did was uh, well, back in the 70s, um, 
really 69, 77, well, somewhere around it, we started developing what was called an organization called Blues to Bluegrass. And and uh, that's still going today. As a matter of fact, we have a, a benefit coming up on the 29th with, I believe it's nine different acts, and we're doing a benefit for mental health here. But uh, what we would do is to get musicians together and and just do benefits for community organizations, for needy causes as a way of organizing within the music system uh, in Chicago. The Old Town School of Folk Music was very big with us. Um, the first band to ever play for us was Special Consensus Bluegrass Band, which is a Chicago band. And, you know, for you folks that are into bluegrass, you'll know who they are because they went on to win many awards. Uh, you know, and, and, and now we uh we have we're, we have that organization now uh here in alabama where we're putting together and bringing people together through these benefits but also uh your good old folk like jane and like uh john langford and and the hideout people up there they're you know supporting us and we're actually recording uh and you know the time of the phoenix uh which was uh uh a, three booklets on poetry, songs, and stories uh, from me, Contraire. Yeah, uh, Waco, dude. And uh, we, uh, we were collected all these songs and stories and poems, just beautiful stuff from, from people that lived in Uptown and also mostly in migrants that came there and what what were they were feeling and you know the Bibles are stuff full of all kinds of stuff and you know that people have written and and so we we get all that and 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 we've published that into a book um, it's been published into a book but also it sparked a, a national exhibit called Organized Ground which travel around the country uh, but we used. We used uh, we used country music as something that we could organize around. Uh, we also used um, the name Hank Williams, which was a, a James Mention Hank Williams Village. You can look it up. It's called the best best housing program that never was, and and that we came up with the alternative of uh, with other organizations of building a a village where that Truman College is in Uptown. Uh, and it was would be self-sustained. We did get funding for it, uh, but of course, you know, the city, you know, they they wanted their own thing there, so they got their college. Uh, although we are I'm working on a project now, which would be the history of Uptown, and that comes back from the past, uh, and hopefully next year we can we can implement this program. But but we used we always use music. Uh, you know, that was a very important part of our culture. Young Lords did dances. They did a number of dances. And the Black Panthers, too. They had their own band and their own dances. So that was that was very important. We did also did with other groups uh, international days where, you know, people from various cultures, uh, ethnicities would come in and bring their food and their music. And we did a lot around with the, uh, with the American Indian Center. Uh, so yeah, it was very important and still is very important of what we do now. And that's, that's just something that's carried over from that period of time that we're still doing now. 
Yeah, I happened by one of those uh, Blues to Bluegrass fundraisers at the hideout years ago with uh, John Lankford. Jake Labatz was there. It was a great, great show and, and, and fun time. Um, since you mentioned uh, some of the stuff around Truman College, um, we got a question that came back in around the level of segregation in Chicago writ large. Um, and then even though Chicago or Uptown was uh, fairly diverse in terms of the people that lived here, lots of Southern whites, but also lots of indigenous folks that lived here, um, some uh, Asian folks that lived uh, in the Northern part of Uptown. Um, but also sort of small pockets of African-American families. And one of those pockets was down on the blocks that were destroyed uh, in order to build Truman College uh, that the Hank Williams Village was a sort of counter proposal for. Um, so the question was in terms of, and this probably goes back to some of the join work um, and some of the housing activists as well, is what did that organizing look like around housing in a city that was so segregated and a neighborhood that was segregated as well? Well, one of the actions that we took, and that that was also joined, uh, took it, uh, Clifton Avenue, which is one of the main streets there that uh, that runs into Wilson Avenue, where the uh, college is now. Um, a number of us moved into that area, moved into that block. You know, so we had, well, I, I don't know, Peggy Terry lived there. I lived there. Uh, we had our our uh, uh, Vietnam uh, paper. Uh, you know, against the war papers, uh, the Kamatsus, we had really can't, every, a lot of other people lived there. And so we would, we deliberately would live there. So we would try to stop this college. There were a few black people that, that lived there, but you know, uh, Uptown at that time could very well have been a, um, a sundowner town. You know, because of the a lot of people were were you know racist. Their uh, their clan members, John Burke Society, uh, American Nazis Party tried to get there for a little while, but we took care of them. But anyway, uh, you know, we were working around all that area and trying to organize the blacks uh, people that were there. But most of the black people were very reluctant about getting involved other than, you know, uh, Dovey, um, Thurman and those people. But um, most of the people that lived there were domestic workers for people down on Lakeshore Drive. I mean, uh, Marine Drive, which was right, you know, uptown bordered. Um, but we were we were able to have a number of protests uh, and we were able to actually take over some buildings and there was one particular building that that uh joined was was allowed to uh rent you know to run manage and that's what we were trying to do um the housing issue uh, became uh very controversial when 
there were uh, uh, three three men came in uh, and bought up a lot of the land where the college was supposed to go, and literally it was arson for hire. They they uh, hired winos and anyone else they could do they could get to come in and burn the buildings. Uh, so they would come in and get the buildings at a cheap price. They'd burn the buildings, get the insurance, and then sell the money, sell the buildings back to the village, back to the city, because and 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 with the city's knowledge. Uh, but unfortunately, there were a number of people killed in those buildings. Uh, they were burned alive. Uh, twenty twenty did an expo uh, and determined that there's like twenty some people died. You know, and we were constantly fighting uh, the city. Uh, and with the Panthers, too, the Panthers were fighting. Uh, the Young Lords were fighting at the same time, Urban Renewal. Uh, and so we were we were together quite often, you know, at, at, at the council meetings, uh, city council meetings and others uh, trying to prevent, uh, you know, this people's removal within our own community. But the, as far as the blacks, you know, the blacks were there. A few of them were involved, but most of them, most, they, they, for their own protection. It wasn't that they didn't support what we were doing, but it was basically for their own protection. And then Uptown uh, really started getting an influx of, 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 of black blacks uh, when they tore down, you know, Cabrini Green and uh, Taylor Homes and all that. And they moved them into the Uptown community. Therefore, they'd moved them right back out again, you know. But uh, if I could, if I could add something to this, this is something that I've been exploring, and you know, by next week I might have a different opinion on this. But the 1949 uh, Housing Act that authorized urban renewal uh, never really got started until the 60s, right? Um, so what I'm exploring, right, you know, right now is trying trying to look through some some original documents if there's any evidence that it was actually that urban renewal tools that were authorized, you know, long before the 60s, of course, were used as part of a permanently. Uh, you know, counterinsurgency tactic uh, there. Uh, I know in my gut that it's true. I haven't come up with the, the smoking gun yet, but whether or not that smoking gun exists, we know that that's largely the um, the consequences, right? You have uh, communities that were formerly very active and, and with large radical presence uh, presences being completely destroyed and there with that much of the organizing potential being uh, b being also decimated so uh, mm -hmm. we'll, um, we'll we'll see where this uh, where this where this in inquiry go goes to but that's that's what I suspect happened you're getting a glimpse of classic James he's always working on his next project it never <laughs> ends it's inspiring <laughs> Yeah, that's Use great. insomnia to your own own advantage. Um, I do have uh, a couple of final questions that we can squeeze in before we're out of time. Um, I'm going to kind of package these three questions together, and maybe we can do a little roundtable style uh, on these. Um, so from Jules Kessler, what strategies do you see being practiced these days by white folks, especially among young white folks, that feel like promising strategies toward building multiracial working class solidarity? Um, 
from Runs with Wolves Moon, what are some ways today that we can support white, black, working class solidarity? And then a third one from uh, Kayla Craddock McIntosh. What are some of the lessons that white left can learn from mistakes of the past? So, you know, these are all certainly distinct questions, but there is a theme there. Um, and maybe we could start off with, not to put anyone on the spot, um, maybe we could start off with Amy um, and then work around uh, back to James. Does that sound good? Yeah, um, I'm not going to pretend to have the answers, um, but I will bring forward a few lessons. Um, and the the book, um, the 10th anniversary edition, we did a few things different um, in the updated edition. One of them is a new epilogue, so I would encourage folks to read that because we do explore um, some of the lessons there. Um, but I would say, like, you know, use the Internet, but don't stop at the Internet. Whatever <coughs> it is that you are doing. Um, the internet is a tool, but it is not the space. It is not the venue. Folks need to um, connect with each other and do the kind of deep organizing, the long-term organizing, the relationship building, the trust building um, that is at the heart of what made any of these alliances possible. Um, the Panthers and the Lords, um, particularly Bob Lee, came to the Patriots because they were doing the work. They were organizing their community already. They were um, active and engaged and, and self-educating. They were um, using political education and theater and music and song to engage and build their communities. They didn't have all the answers either, obviously, as High has told us so well, um, but they were doing the work. And because they were doing the work at the Alliance was possible. Um, and that just isn't, it just, it can't be petitions online and, you know, Instagram posts and whatever it is that um, demonst performative demonstrations of allyship might look like today. Um, I'd say that's just um, the political education, the real organizing, the trust and relationship building are critical um, for whatever comes next. And I'll pass it off. Cool. Do you want to take it up high? Yeah, sure. Uh, what we're doing now, I think, will answer a lot of that, a lot of those questions. Um, uh, I'm in the process of um, working with the second Rainbow Coalition that is uh, right now being organized. Um, and I think you'll hear some announcements on that soon. Uh, because of the uh, the groups that are involved uh, have deliberately come to uh, the elders of the first Rainbow Coalition, and we have put together a, a committee of elders. Uh, and these groups uh, have come together. One of the one of the areas I had we had talked to them about was doing a statement of unity and how. All these groups are going to work together. And right now, these groups are, they've been sanctioned by their respective uh, organizations, such as um, the New African Black Panthers. Uh, they've been sanctioned by, you know, the, 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 uh, the Black Panthers. We got the New Era Young Lords, uh, and, and they're working with the original Young Lords. Um, there's a uh, called the White Panthers, and you know, uh, and so I'm I'm primarily working with them. Uh, American uh, Aim, uh, 
uh, several chapters have come together in this. Um, and um, it was a brown berets. Now we've also just uh, included, James, you might, you might help me with this name of the Army of the Poor, is that what it is in Philadelphia? Um, um, I believe I believe you're talking about Kensington Welfare Rights Union or, an, yeah. or, or a related organization. Yeah, uh, have just joined. Uh, and so what we're doing now is that these are all, you know, different racial groups that are working together. And, and they're taking the legacy of the of the original Rainbow Coalition. And they're and they, of course, they'll do their own thing in a different way, but they're doing, you know, all kinds of activities. And uh, like I say, this organization, we have just we've just organized it and it's going to be I'm pretty sure you're going to hear a lot about what they're doing and they're following the same uh, point programs as the original uh, Patriots and uh, Black Panthers and Young Lords and whatever. So uh, that's, you know, this is how we're working together to, to support, you know, each um, each racial group. And they're all wanting to learn from the past because they've been studying, you know, the past in terms of the Rainbow Coalition. And that's perhaps one of the best things we can do is to study the past, to learn from the past, you know, and, and we've had people say, okay, we're here, we're here now doing our thing because you guys smoothed out the rocky road, you know, but you know, the, 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 the government is not about to let that road be smooth much longer. And, and so there are, there are organizations within your own community that really need your help, uh, your help and your support. And uh, I'd say just read as much as you can, study as much as you can, you know, get to know some folks that, that are really doing some good work and just, you know, pick their brain. Uh, and uh, one of the things that, that Bobby, Bobby Lee, Robert Lee taught me was, uh, if you've seen the documentary First Rainbow Coalition, which was uh, brand new uh, out, uh, he, he, he taught me that if you don't know where to organize, you go to your front door and then you go look out your back door and you look out your, your left window and you look out your right window. And then you pick a direction because chances are somebody down there needs some help, you know, so you just have to keep searching, I guess. Well, it's, it's real hard to follow that. Uh, that, that every time I hear you say that either in the film or in, in person, it bring, uh, chokes me up a bit. Uh, but I will say that I think that as far as arenas for building multiracial unity uh, we should this is gonna make me sound like an old leftist but uh, the workplace I think is really really important uh, arena uh, community organizing is incredibly important uh, no matter what till this day and it will be uh, as long you know long as we have uh, have governments and capitalism and states but uh, communities because of gentrification and displacement have become more and more resegregated but workplaces are more and more integrated so i think that's that's going to be one one area of um of struggle so yeah 
Okay. I think Eric just left. <laughs> so, we, lo- we lost our esteemed yeah. host. <laughs> I, guess that's, I guess that's the end there. So can we give a big, big warm uh, revolutionary uh, thanks and love to Sean and Eric and Maggie, everybody at Rampant Magazine and Haymarket Books. It's a pleasure to be in Struggle with y'all and thanks for having us over. Yeah. And thank you to Melville House for supporting the 10th anniversary edition. Yes. And to Hi for joining us. And there's a great interview with Hi in the back of the book. Um, and also get Hi's biography. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org. <laughs>